Good morning. Well, welcome again to our service. If you're visiting this morning, uh, my name is Carl Carr. I'm one of the teachers here at uh, Tomball Bible Church. <clears throat> it is our practice that our senior pastor, Skeet Alterson, he teaches on Sunday mornings approximately 70% of the time or so, while other elders and leaders in ministry uh, teach the other 30% or so of the time. And we think uh, that this is a healthy practice so that our congregation can hear from others uh, in leadership uh, while Skeet can invest in other areas of ministry as well. So this morning we're going to return to our sermon series after a one-week hiatus. Uh, we're going to return to the sermon series in the life of David. And we will be examining today principally uh, 2 Samuel chapter 6 that... Uh, We've titled The King Rejoices. My hope is that from uh, today's passage of Scripture, we're going to arrive at at three key principles uh, from this passage. So, first of all, I believe that this passage will illustrate that when we come to God, we come to God on God's terms alone. And second, if, if we seek to follow Jesus, then following Jesus is according to God's terms as well. And lastly, this passage painfully shows us that when we seek to truly follow Jesus, the world will almost always respond in opposition. So, let's begin this morning by turning in your Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we're going to look at the first 11 verses. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible and you want one, there is one under the end of each uh, row, and if you... uh, Use that. Uh, That Bible is our gift to you. You can keep that and take that home with you. Uh, And uh, we'll also project the uh, verses that we reference on the screen uh, above me as well. So I am more of a teacher than a preacher, so we're going to look at a lot of verses this morning. So let's begin. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. It says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel... 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, (coughs) were driving the new cart. With the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. Verse 5, it says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez-Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, and the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, 
And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. So, what was the ark that they're referring to? What was the ark all about? And why was it such a big deal? And why was David attempting to move this ark uh, to Jerusalem? Well, first of all, just to review, the ark was originally constructed according to God's instructions as part of this building of the tabernacle and its furnishings. Uh, These instructions were given to Moses in the desert after the exodus of God's people from Egypt. And the ark was to be the holiest of locations whereby God would come and dwell above it to interact first with Moses and later with Joshua. Now, as such, uh, the ark was a representation and a reminder of God's central presence in the lives of God's people. And it had a central presence in the performing of all the rituals and offerings and sacrifices as well. Now, the ark was also a reminder, though, of God's complete holiness in that it was never to be looked upon directly except at God's instructions. And it was never to be touched directly, and all movement of the ark was to be accomplished by consecrated priests exactly as God had instructed. Or the result was death to the one who violated God's instructions. So the message of the ark was clear. God's presence was a blessing, but God was holy. You enjoyed God's presence, but it was only on his terms. So, from the time of the construction of the ark near Sinai, the ark symbolized both God's presence and his blessings as long as uh, God's people followed God's design. Well, under the leadership first of Moses and later Joshua, uh, the ark led God's people into battle. It it led them across the Jordan River on dry land. It led them as they circled Jericho and the defeat of Jericho. And with the ark in front, within about a seven-year period, they conquered uh, the entire, most most entire land of Canaan uh, just in a seven-year period. So once this was accomplished, Joshua and the people... They settled in Canaan, and they placed the ark in the tabernacle in a place called Shiloh. And before long, the people of God began to assimilate some of these practices and idols of the people that they had conquered. And just like the ark, they set God aside because they really, you know, they didn't really need him anymore. Now, in your Bibles, I want to pick up at this point in time... And so I want to ask you to turn back one book from 2 Samuel to 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel, I want you to turn to chapter 4. And we're going to begin in verse 1 and go through the first nine verses. So 1 Samuel chapter 4. It says, Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. And they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines camped at Aphek. And the Philistines drew up in a line against Israel. And when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, 
that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. So be men and fight. Now, I want you to notice in this passage that when the people of God were defeated initially, they didn't turn to God. What they did and what they said in verse 3 was, let's go get the ark so that the power of the ark may save us, not the power of God. And in a twist of, in just a twist of messed up thinking, they took the ark that was designed to be a meeting place between God and his people, and they made the ark itself into an idol. Does that sound familiar in uh, Christianity today? Now look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home, and there was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So, God's people had set God aside. And suddenly, they were being defeated by the Philistines. And so they got together and they said, Hey, let's go get the ark like we used to and see if that will bring us good luck. And they forgot that the ark was only a symbol of God's presence and blessing. They forgot that God's blessings and presence was always granted on God's terms and God's terms alone. They wrongly thought that the ark was a good luck charm that could somehow manipulate God's favor and that they could just drag it out when things were not going well. So they lost the ark completely. And today, we as a church are making the very same mistakes. So in this passage, we find a very serious truth from God's word for us today. God's presence and his blessing and his power in your life comes when you surrender your life to him. God is not and has never been interested in being your God on a shelf that you pull out every time that things are not going well for you. And you use God as some sort of cosmic good luck charm. The gospel, the good news, is that Christ has come to free you from this self-centered, destructive life that you have created. But it seems more and more in churches today, that the gospel, it's, it's really no longer the gospel. And Jesus is no longer presented as Lord. 
And instead, Christianity has been reduced to a scheme that's somehow going to augment your sinful life and desires. And by so doing, the church is communicating that Christ didn't die to set you free from sin. He just came to help you be a more positive thinking and happier sinner. And this is what we're hearing from pulpits across America. And suddenly, we as a church are no longer ambassadors for the king. But, but, if we really try hard, we can make every day feel like Friday, though. And who doesn't want that, right? Church, if we want God's presence in our lives, with his power and with his blessing, we come to him on his terms, in repentance and in faith, and we cast aside the idols of this world. Get this. I believe that the current state of this country is not due to any kind of politics. I don't believe it's due to homosexuals or even liberals or anything else that you want to blame the state of this country on. I think the state of this country is instead a direct result of the idolatry of the people who are supposed to be representing Christ in America. So back to David. After the ark uh, was lost to the Philistines, instead of the ark bringing Philistines power as they had hoped, a lot of bad things started happening to the Philistines that were near it. And so they eventually tied it to a cart and some cows, and they sent the ark back to Israel. They said, good riddance, we don't want it. And eventually the ark ended up on its own in a place about nine miles from Jerusalem in this place called kiriath Jerim. Uh, It was also known in Scripture as this Bala of Judah. And there's where the ark stayed from that time throughout the reign of King Saul. And from all we can tell from Scripture, Saul had little interest in the ark during his reign. Because you see, Saul was all about Saul's glory, and the ark was all about God's glory. Then at the end of Saul's reign, when David became king, David realized what the ark represented. And he knew immediately that it should be in Jerusalem, in the center of Israel's capital and in the center of people's lives, as a reminder that for Israel, God was king. So we read in 2 Samuel chapter 6, just a few minutes ago, that David, with the best of intentions, sets out to move the ark but it goes very poorly and someone dies. This scene uh, there in uh, 2 Samuel where Uzzah dies for touching the ark, that kind of makes some of us a little bit uncomfortable because, you know, it seemed like David and Uzzah and his brother who were guiding the ark, they were trying to do the right thing. However, if you look more closely, you realize that from the beginning, God had given explicit instructions as to how to move the ark, where to place the ark, and who was to move the ark as well. The ark was to be moved with sacrifices by priests only, and these priests were to be first cleansed and prepped and dressed as God had instructed as well. These were God's terms, but when David sets out to move the ark with the best of intentions, right, David does it his way without proper preparation and with the wrong people and with David dressed as the king of Israel. 
And we see that the consequences were just disastrous. Now, I have uh, been a pediatrician for about 25 years, and uh, there are three incidences of patients uh, and how they behave um, that I would like to share with you this morning. Uh, First of all, I have some patients that before they come to see me when their child has an illness of some sort or something, when before they come to see me, uh, they try out uh, every drug that's in their cabinet first. I won't mention anyone, but, uh, but they're here this morning. And, and um, <clears throat> she's actually in the nursery, so that's not fair. Okay, so, uh, and then they come to me and... and you know, I took a blue pill and two yellow ones, and we're not sure what they are, but we tried those. And so I don't know what to do when they come in. Um, another example of how people will react to illnesses or instructions is uh, probably my second week at, at Fort Polk uh, early on. I had a young mom who was 18, and she had a two-year-old, and her husband was a young private but was deployed, so she was with, by herself with this baby. And they came in, had their very first ear infection. And so no big deal. I put the child on amoxicillin, told her, you need to take this orally for twice a day for 10 days. And well, three or four days, this young mom calls back, and she says, this stuff you're giving me, first of all, it's not working. He's still miserable. And second of all, I can't keep it in him. And I'm like, well, why don't you, why don't you bring him in? Let me look at his ears again, and we'll see where to go from there. And so when she came in, I walked into the exam room, and there was this two-year-old sitting on her young on his young mom's lap with cotton balls in his ear and this pink stuff oozing out of both ears. And, you know, so I was just incredulous. But for those of you who don't have children, amoxicillin goes in your mouth, not in your ears. And it doesn't work by pouring it in your ears. So that's another example of instructions that didn't go so well. Um, another kind is I have, I have quite a few in Texas. We have quite a few patients with uh, asthma. And when you reach a certain threshold, we call that chronic recurrent asthma. And in chronic recurrent asthma, one of the mainstays of treatment is a daily inhaled steroid. And these inhaled steroids are very effective about reducing the symptoms and the frequency of the symptoms as well. And so when patients come in and they've reached this threshold and the parents are tired of the asthma, we'll start an inhaled steroid. And they will go home and and they'll do as I told them to do this every day. And on the fifth day or so, the child starts getting better. And then on about day 21 average, what happens? They stop taking it, right? Why? Because the patient got better. Okay. And then three weeks later, almost to the day, they come back to my office for what? He's got the symptoms back again. And I say, well, are you taking your steroid like we talked about? And they're like, well, we took it Tuesday. And so if you look at these three initials, and the reason I'm telling you this, other than the fact that I just really need to vent sometimes, (laughs) is, is when it comes to... Christians and believers and how we deal with God and his instructions to us, we do the very same things to God that some of our patients do 
to us. So listen to me very carefully. God is gracious and God is forgiving to his people. But God is also holy. And not only do we come to him on his terms, but we follow him on his terms as well. Following God on your terms, according to God, is not following God at all. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, many Christians, they will attempt to follow God in the following way. As they're moving through life, whenever an issue comes their way, they say to themselves, well, what would I do if I were God? And by that very reasoning, they can justify any behavior and... As unbelievable as it may sound, we end up saying things like, you know, this cheating on my wife, I didn't intend for this to happen, but cheating on my wife makes me happy. And I know God wants me to be happy, so God must be okay with this. So get this. When we do this, we have just appointed ourselves God and we no longer follow Jesus. Scripture and the gospel is explicit in nature. And when we reject Scripture for what we think is right, then we reject God as the ultimate authority, and we are no longer followers of Christ. When Scripture is no longer the inspired, inerrant word of God, then Christianity is just simply a bunch of people who follow God by this principle of, well, whatever I think is right and whatever I feel is right for me must be right. And then we've created a God of our own making. It's kind of this ultimate idol of self. And in such a paradigm, there is no authority in your life that's higher than you. But, but, if if God's word is the inspired and inerrant word of God, then no pastor, no leader, no president, and no Supreme Court justice can determine what is right or what is wrong if their decision usurps the authority of God's Word. So when people ask my opinion about recent actions of our government, I respond with, well, my opinion doesn't really matter. Because as a follower of Christ, the only opinion that matters is God's opinion, and we find that opinion in the Bible. Well, how does all of that, how does all of this impact me as a follower of Christ. Well, I believe that how we are to follow him is quite clear in Scripture. Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 4, verse 19. Matthew chapter 4, verse 19 says, And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Now turn a few chapters back to Matthew chapter 28 and look at verses 18 through 20. Beginning in verse 18, it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So I want you to notice from these passages that Jesus didn't say, follow me and I will make you a great caretaker of the environment. 
And Jesus didn't say, follow me and I will make you rich and powerful. And Jesus didn't say, follow me and we will build great cathedrals together. And he didn't say, follow me and I will make you such a positive thinker that you will meet every one of your business goals. You see, there's a lot of positive things that we can do in our lives that may or may not be good things, but when it comes to following Jesus, it must center around doing what he commanded, making disciples and sharing the gospel. So regardless of our intentions, following Jesus means doing what he did and obeying what he commanded. That is why our focus and our purpose statement at TVC is to glorify God by making mature disciples to reach the nations. So as a church, and for those seeking to follow Jesus, following Jesus means specific things based upon God's terms. And following Jesus isn't about following him however you want or however makes you feel warm inside. But it is instead instead something that's really specific. Therefore, as a church, if we busy ourselves by doing other things than what Christ commanded... Even if they're good things, even if our church becomes very popular and very wealthy, then we as a church are being disobedient and we can't say that we're following Jesus. We follow Jesus on his terms or we don't follow Jesus. So turn back with me again where we began at 2 Samuel chapter 6. So 2 Samuel chapter 6. And I want to pick up this narrative of David in uh, verses 12 through 15. So 2 Samuel Samuel 6, verse 12. And it says, And it was told King David, The Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps... He sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. So see what happens here in this passage. David says, lesson learned, Lord. And David then goes to every length to satisfy the requirements of the Lord for moving the ark. I want you to notice that for approximately nine miles, they stop every six steps and sacrifice two animals before they proceed. David was not taking any chances this time. And I want you to notice as well that this time, David doesn't dress as a king. There's no crown, there's no sword, there's no armor. David is dressed in a linen ephod, the outfits of a priest and worshiper, And he's acknowledging God as king of kings. David, after being humbled by God, was reminded of his position before God. And so this time, David approaches God on God's terms. So as followers of God, understanding our position before a holy God is crucial. And David learns this lesson well in this passage. And so similarly, as followers of Jesus... We must continually and daily remember that our position before God is as sinners redeemed by God's grace and mercy. And it's by His word and His power alone that we are daily transformed to be more like Him. Paul, 
originally one of the most arrogant men alive, understood this and the importance of our position before God when he says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 10, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we not only come to God on his terms alone, but we follow God on his terms alone as well. Okay, let's return one last time to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and begin in verse 16. So in verse 16, we begin as as David and all of Israel are escorting this ark into Jerusalem. So verse 16, it says, As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. Isn't that an interesting response to worship? Verse 17 says, And they brought in the ark of the Lord, and they set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house. So we have this amazing mountaintop experience because God is back on the throne of Israel and at the center of God's people once again. And then David, all pumped up and he's excited, he heads home to continue this celebration in his own house. So let's pick up at verse 20. It says, And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, Oh, how the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. Can you feel the dripping sarcasm from Michael? In verse 21, it says, And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord. And I will celebrate before the Lord. And I'll make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. But by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael... The daughter of Saul had no child to the day of her death. So David, in moving the ark as God had commanded, he gets it right this time. And it's with joy that he celebrates this event because he knows what the presence of the ark in Jerusalem represents. And it's not just for David, but it's for for all the people of Israel. See, David is making right what King Saul got wrong. David intends to reign before God's people according to God's terms, while Saul had reigned only according to Saul's terms, and Saul had set God and the ark aside for more than 40 years. 
So before we leave this group of verses, I want you to notice that in verse 21, David refers to himself not as king, but as the prince over Israel. In the contrast there of God as king during David's reign versus the reign of Michael's father, King Saul, the contrast is unmistakable. So let me just ask you, have you ever been laughing and talking as you walk along with some other people and you're not watching where you're going only to walk right into a pole? Maybe it's just me. (laughs) But in my mind, David's reception by his wife, Michael, after this worship service, it must have felt a little bit like that. And it had to have surprised him a bit and really hurt, not just because of the stinging criticism, but also because it came from his own wife in his own household. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And just listen to me for just a moment more as as I make this, this last point. Uh, Luke 9.23, Jesus says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. See, when Jesus picked up his cross and he had to carry it to Calvary, all along the way, people were not yelling, Way to go, Jesus, were they? You know, and the, and the disciples weren't in the background with big, holding big signs that said, thank you for what you're doing for us. You can do it, Jesus. We believe. That's not what happened, is it? I think that quite often we as leaders in the church, we fail new believers when we don't tell them this one very important thing about following Jesus. And this one important thing is this. When we seek to truly follow Jesus, you will face opposition. And more often than not, this opposition, this this criticism, this sarcasm, will come from someone close to you. And this breaks our heart, and it especially hurts. And it just doesn't hurt because you wanted their support and confidence. It hurts because you want for them what you have found in Jesus. You have found something that's so precious that everything else has lost its allure for you, but they just don't seem to understand, and it's heartbreaking. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10 and in John chapter 15, he said that if they hated me, they will hate you as well because of me. It's important to understand that when you seek to follow Jesus, And when you inevitably face opposition, more often than not, it's not you that you're rejecting, but it's what you represent that they reject. See, you represent a challenge to their belief that their opinions are the ultimate authority over their lives. You represent a challenge to their belief that they can just follow Jesus any way that they want. They especially resent the fact that you represent a challenge to their belief that their lifestyle is a sin before a holy God and that this holy God has the ultimate authority in their lives as well. 
So I tell you this as a reminder and as an encouragement that when you seek to follow Jesus, don't become discouraged when you face opposition from the world that is sure to come. Take it instead as evidence that you are actually serving the king. So let's wrap up this morning's study from 2 Samuel uh, with just a few things that I think are important. Uh, I think all of us realize that we currently live in a culture in which biblical Christianity is becoming very unfashionable. I think that in light of recent events, many of us are coming to grasp with the fact that what you believe will increasingly place you in the minority of Americans. And as heartbreaking as it is, as Christian parents, how we're raising our children and what we're teaching our children will inevitably make them targets of persecution as well. And in this environment, over the next decade or so, I think it natural that false religions that label themselves as Christian but cater to selfishness and idolatry will just continue to flourish. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. It's our last verse for this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3. Paul warns us about a day that we are living in right now. Paul says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So what does this all mean for those who seek to truly follow Jesus? And and what applications can we pull from 2 Samuel chapter 6? Well, First of all, more than ever, we are called to be light in the darkness. We as a church can no longer afford to dally in idolatry and selfish pursuits while a lost world is watching because the stakes are just too high in our culture now. Number two, even though the world is changing around us, The gospel and how we're to follow Jesus has not changed. We come before God and we serve God on His terms and His terms alone. And although we may rightly change our methods to relate to the culture that we're trying to influence, the gospel message and the authority of God's Word must not change. Otherwise, we are no longer Christianity. Number three, our primary role as followers of Christ is to make disciples who will also disciple others. More than ever, we cannot become distracted with other things while not following Christ's command to all of us who want to follow him. The the church, 20 years from now, will be led by the next generation of disciples that we make today. And lastly, when you truly follow Christ with your whole life, you will face opposition. And sometimes this opposition is going to come from people that you care about. But you know what? When you sell out to Christ, it won't really matter because once you experience this joy in following Christ and making disciples, nothing else in this world can compare. There's nothing like it in all this world. 
So I'm going to draw a line there. If you're taking notes or you have your Bible, I'll ask you to set that aside. And let's all stand together. As the worship team comes forward, I'm going to make essentially two invitations for you this morning. One, if you are here and the Holy Spirit has been working in your life and in your heart you've decided that you want to follow Jesus, then as the music comes, I'm going to invite you uh, to come forward. I think... uh, I think Carlos is here and Bear's down front and I'll be down front uh, as well. If you want someone to talk to, if you want someone to pray with, let us know. If you think that's just too intense or too intimidating, you can contact our pastors and elders. Uh, You can email them. You can call our church office. We want to talk to you. Second of all, if you are a believer and this message from today has made you Consider that perhaps your life in Christ does not reflect that of a follower of Jesus. And I'm going to ask you that as the music plays this morning, that you pray to commit again uh, to Christ as a follower of Christ, as a disciple maker for Christ. And if you want to make that commitment and share that with someone else, we'll be down front as well to pray with you also. And so I just ask you to bow your heads as we close in prayer this morning. Lord, we, uh, we come before you, Lord, both as a church and as individuals, Lord, just uh, coming before you saying, Lord, we want to repent and we want to turn back to you and turn away from the idols of this world. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would stir in our hearts anew a love and a passion for serving you. I just pray, Lord, that as we face this world and we face this opposition, Lord, that you would strengthen us and give us courage to serve the King. Lord, it's in your name that we pray and we ask these things. Amen.